Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. You know, when Jesus came into the world, God came into the world in a personal way. You ever think about that? God in a bod. Right? God came among us. The coming of God as a man was also a disruption to this fallen world and this sinful order. When Jesus came down onto planet earth, just his presence, the fact that he is light and life and love and truth and holiness and righteousness, all of those things are in in direct opposition to the spirit of the age and the world in which we live in. So just the fact that he walks onto the scene and he comes down onto planet earth, he's going to be a disrupting influence. And one of the things that we see throughout the gospel narratives in the birth of Jesus Christ and the announcement to Mary and to Elizabeth and all the things that take place in every one of those events, we see this disrupting influence of Jesus Christ coming onto planet earth. That when he comes, he comes to change things, to stir things, to to bring about a disruption to the normal order because the normal order is broken and fallen and messed up. And so when a presence comes on the scene to fix that. Just by his presence, things are going to happen. Things are going to come down. Can I get an amen? amen? This disruption began the process of restoring everything that is broken, everything that has fallen. This restoration includes the restoration of the fallen image of God in human beings. See, we are not what we are supposed to be. The world is not how it's supposed to be. God's original intention and what He wants things to be in the end is ultimately different than what we see right now. And we have to recognize that, that none of us in this room are ultimately what God has us to be. And then in the end, the human being that you are right now is going to, you're going to be you, but you're going to be much different, much more glorious, much more beautiful because of the work of Christ in you. This restoration also includes God restoring that battle of the sexes, that struggle between male and female, and also the gap between generations. You know, we have this issue in our culture even where generationally we're disconnected and we're broken. And when Jesus came, he came to restore everything and he restored things by his disrupting presence. So today we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 2 verses 25 through 38, and it's a story of an old man named Simeon, an old woman named Anna, Mary and Joseph, and little baby Jesus. And the interaction between them is revolutionary and powerful, and I want us to look at it with a fresh set of eyes. So follow me here in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking forward to Israel's consolation. The consolation of Israel was the coming of the Messiah. Just so you know, the consolation of Israel was that sense of being comforted and having hope because once and for all, finally, the Messiah was going to come and He was going to fix our broken nation and He was going to fix us as a people. So Israel was hoping for the coming of the Messiah. So this man was looking forward to Israel's consolation. And look what it says, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform what, for him what was, the, what was customary under the law, Simeon took, up, took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. You do some quick math. This woman's up around 100 years old. She did not leave the temple. Look at this language. Serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So as we get into this text and we break it down, I just want to set the stage and I want to look at the characters in the great story of disruption and hope. I want to look at the characters. I want to give a little insight into them and set the stage and then share some ideas with you from the text that I think are really relevant to us in the time that we live. So the first thing is we look at, of course, Jesus. Jesus is a baby. And at this point, Jesus would be 40 days old. See, two things happened when a child was born in near Jerusalem at that time, the first thing that happens is you would take a male child and on the eighth day, you'd take him to the temple and that child would be circumcised by the priest. And then on the 40th day, after the full process of purification took place, they would also take the child in and the child would go through a dedication process. On the eighth day of the circumcision, the child would then be given their official name. Now the angel of the Lord had spoken to both Joseph and Mary and said, you are to name this child Jesus. But at the temple, they would actually do the official naming of the child. And so Jesus is there. He's 40 days old at this point. And his name, Jesus, means God is our Savior or God saves. So as we learned last week, the very name of Jesus is his mission. He is what he's named, right? And I told you last week that the name was actually a very common name. And in their tongue, in the Hebrew tongue, the name would be Yeshua, which is the same name that we use for Joshua. So Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus is all the same name. This is the Greek derivative, okay? Jesus is the Greek derivative translated into English. Okay, did that just mess some of you up? You're like, oh man. Okay, so he's given this name according to Jewish law and tradition. And what we see about Jesus, it's beautiful here, is that Jesus had to go through everything the normal boy in his culture had to go through. He was fully God and fully human, and at this point in his infancy, he had to be circumcised. 
just like all the other little boys. And he had to be dedicated, and he had to receive a name, just like all the other little boys. And then we have Joseph and Mary. And as I said, they went to the temple on the 40th day to dedicate him. And according to the law of purification, after childbirth in the book of Leviticus, the parents went to the temple, temple made a sacrifice based upon their financial ability. And uh, their, their ability at that time would have been either two turtle doves or two pigeons. We see that in the text before, that they brought in a couple of birds. Instead of a, you know, a lamb, a goat, a sheep, they, they brought in just a couple of birds. And they offer this bird as a sacrifice for purification. And then we have Simeon, and it says here of Simeon, and I want you to think of the language that's used for him. He was righteous and devout, and he had eyes, his eyes open to the coming of the Messiah. He waited in expectant hope and faith for Jesus to come. The scripture says the Holy Spirit was upon him, and God had shown him prophetically that he would see the coming of the Messiah before he died. Based upon all these circumstances, we can conclude that Simeon was an old man, yet he was full of hope and faith. Think about that for a minute because our natural tendency as human beings is that the older we get, the more cynical we become, right? The older we get, the more crusty we become. If you're not careful, this world will fit you into its mold. And the older you get, the moldier you'll get. Seriously. You'll, you'll become a person who looks at the world, looks at the next generation, looks at the things going on, and it will always be what's wrong, what's negative, what's down, what you don't like, how much better your generation was than the new generation that's coming up. You'll become a critical person. And yet what we see in Simeon is just the opposite. We see a man whose eyes are set on the kingdom, whose heart is toward God, who's righteous, who's devout, who's got the Holy Spirit upon him, and he has the ability to see what God's doing in the earth. And he's been set up. God loves him so much, he has set him up for this moment so he can intersect with the plan of God and be there not just to see it, but to speak into it. I love that. This man walked close to God, and he was right where he needed to be in God's plan. He was guided by the Spirit into the temple at just the moment Jesus was present with his parents, and this guy had been told by God that you're going to get to live to see the Messiah. Now, now, let's be honest. If you or I stood up here and said, you know, God told me that I'm going to get to live until Jesus comes back. He told me that personally. You'd probably look at me or whoever said that and say, right. And so I don't know if Simeon kept that close, if he pondered these things in his heart and held on to them, or if he'd ever told anybody, but he knew that he was going to be there at this intersection, and he was going to get to see the Lord's Messiah. Wow, incredible. And then we have Anna. This amazing woman in the text is called a prophetess. And yet, as I taught you last week, you know, between Malachi and Matthew, one page in our Bible was a 400-year period of time known as the time of silence. We don't have any prophetic books at that time. We're not aware of any other writings other than some of the apocryphal writings it does seem that God was speaking in some of the apocryphal writings, but we don't have God speaking through a prophet to the nation. There's silence. And yet, God was still speaking to individual people. Anna was a prophetess. That means she spoke for the Lord, which means she heard from the Lord. 
And the same with Simeon. So we have two people that were still hearing God in the midst of a dry time, in the midst of a dark time, in the midst of being under Roman occupation, in in the midst of a time when there didn't seem to be any prophets writing or establishing scripture. There's this old man and this old woman, and they are hearing God. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. There's always somebody out there that's tuned into the voice of God. Amen? Amen? And it says that she was a devout widow for a very long time, and she always fasted and prayed within the temple. I found myself saying, when did this woman sleep? When did she eat? It says she was in the temple night and day, fasting and praying. Wow, she was devout. God has her be present at this very moment of Jesus' dedication. So here, check it out. Here we have, here's the setting. We have a young man. We have a young woman. We have an old man and an old woman present with Jesus in his dedication. They represent the restoration of Adam and Eve and the image of God in male and female. And they also represent the restoration of the generations. God redeems. God came to break down the barrier that divides. And right there at that moment, without their parents present, God made sure An old man and an old woman who served him could be there like godparents to witness, and not just to witness, but to speak into it the blessing of God, the prophetic word of God. Now let's get into the great disruption that restored hope, and let's talk about the big ideas from this text. We've set the scene. We know who the characters are. We know what's going on. Now let's talk about some of the big ideas, the most important things for us and and from the text. The first thing is this. God arranges and brings forth multi-generational blessings. He's not just the God of Abraham. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and so on, and so on. Why do you think, you know, some of us when we read the Bible, right, we get to the begats and the begots, we get to those parts of the Bible, and we're like, why is this stuff in here? But you have to understand to a Jew, That was their connection. God is a multi-generational God and every generation counts. And when you follow this lineage, this is what you've got. You've got the Messiah coming all the way from this group back here, all the way from Abraham, all the way to Adam. You have this lineage because God is with every generation and he passes none by. God arranges and brings forth a multi-generational blessing. He arranges for an old man and an old woman in the stead of Joseph and Mary's parents to be present to bless the child and the couple. This pattern is how God intended the family to operate. In our times, many times, there's too much of an emphasis on the nuclear family only. God intended multi-generational blessings to be upon the newest members of every family. See, I love this. God the Father is taking care of His own Son by arranging that three generations be present, including his son, at Jesus' dedication. Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the pattern of God, and it's important, right? And, and it's, it's kind of sad because we do live in a time, and I understand in some cases there's no way to avoid it. I know of stories right in this room where there can't be connection between families because of such estrangement, and I pray that that gets healed because it's heartbreaking to God. But here's the reality. Here's the truth. God's heart and God's intention is that the generations be connected and not see each other in ways that are judgmental or critical or or ways that separate and divide us, but rather that God would bring us together. And in our country, we've had such
such an emphasis on, you know, husband, wife, and the kids, and that little family unit, and now we're going to go off, and we're going to be autonomous, and we're going to do it on our own, and we're going to make it on our own, and when we look at the scripture, we don't see that. Many times, one of the things that will imp- impress me or, or um, you know, kind of make an impact upon me when I travel overseas is when I go to cultures like the Philippines, for instance. In the Philippines, there's such a deep connection between generations. And so, you, you know, you like, you honor your grandparents, you honor your mother and your father. And, and so, you know, you'll have generations of people living together. And in some cases, it's because it's economically necessary and everybody's helping and supporting one another. And, and the idea, and, and, and I know there are times when this has to happen, but the idea of just taking our aged grandparents and putting them off in a home somewhere, that's foreign. Like I've actually had people say, so wait, explain this to me. You, you send your elderly people to a home and then nobody ever sees them or visits them? Yeah, it kind of happens sometimes. I mean, they, they just they can't, they can't wrap their head around it. It's another thing I see right here in the States many times. I, I have to say that I think the, the Hispanic, the Latino culture does it way better than white folk do. There's a much deeper connection. Family is important. They're watching out for each other. They're a clan, and they might fight like cats and dogs because I've witnessed it. But don't mess with them because everybody will come to each other's aid, and it'll be over real quick. We see that connection, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's really a part of God's heart. And then God honors, the next point here is that God honors and blesses his faithful and older saints. Think about it. The love, the honor, and the blessing that God demonstrates to both Simeon and Anna. It's beautiful. Right here are two God seekers. They faithfully serve God in their later years. And, and you know, really, again, this can be a rare thing. Like, it grieves me. I have to tell you, I believe it grieves the heart of God, too. One of the things, when you're a Christian, one of the things that you do is you assess your culture, right? And you, you look at your culture, you look at your society, and you recognize that some things are compatible with the Christian faith, and other things are not. Let me tell you one of the things that's not compatible with being a follower of Jesus, and that is the current ideas about retirement, Oh, I'm about to step on some toes right now. Here's what we teach in society. Save up your money, get it all together, plan your money, so when you retire, you can go live for yourself. You can now live a selfish life of comfort and self-absorption. You can travel, do whatever you want to do, and it's all about you, and it's all about entitlement, and it's all about comfort, right? And we see that. There's this encouragement toward it. Now, listen, I believe if you've worked hard for 30, 40, 50 years, You should be able to enjoy the fruit of your labors. There should be some enjoyment to it, right? There should be some perks. But you know what God's plan for our perks are? Our perks are to bless people. Our life, our latter years, are to be given to God's purpose and God's plan, right? So we don't ever truly retire. We might quit working that one job, but we're always in the labor of his vineyard. We're always working in his kingdom. We're always saying, God, here I am, use me, let me serve your purposes. Years ago, we were really blessed. A a couple in the church made it possible for my family and I to take a break, and we went on a sabbatical, and we went to Mexico, and uh, we got to stay in a really nice place for seven weeks in Mexico. I know, I'm sorry, we were really blessed. We could have never done it on our own. 
And while we were there, many of the people we interacted with were retirees. I was in my early 40s. And there were retirees from Canada and the United States. And within just a few days, my wife and I realized not only did they not want our family in this place we were staying, our family, because we were young and we had kids and kids make noise and noise is inconvenient and it bothers me. Um, but they, and they let us know that. One man actually came to us. I was in the swimming pool with my kids and he's like, you know, um, you're too young to be here and we don't really like kids being around. So our group's going to get together and talk and we're going to see if you can stay. That's what they said to me. And, I'm so, and I said, we're not going anywhere. I'll be on the phone. I'll call the condo owner and we'll get this worked out. Thank God the condo owner was a lawyer. <laughs> and he said they don't have any ground to stand on. But anyth- anyway, one of the things we saw over and over again was the complete rudeness and self-absorption of entitled living that existed in many of the retirees. I couldn't believe it. Go to a restaurant, the rudest people in the room were people who were retiring and now felt like the world owed them something. And man, they, want, they were demanding, get it over here now, I want it now, it better be good, it's not hot, it's too cold, it's this, it's that. And I was like, whoa. But then there was this one couple. They were a Canadian couple and they loved Jesus. And there was a church there called La Vigna, the vineyard. And they had an outreach to the city dump. And the city dump is where a lot of people lived. And when people would bring their things to the dump, they would, get, they would pick through it all, and then out of that, they would sell it at a, at a market. Okay, so we went and did an outreach with them too and took some of our kids. And one of the things that struck us about this one couple was even though they were retired and they were there and we spoke with them about this, they were really warm and welcoming to us. And they also made it, like when they were down in Mexico, they were there, yes, to enjoy. He played some golf, yes, that's okay. But he also served at the city dump and served at that church and they were always looking for opportunities. God, how can we use our time now and our resources? We don't have jobs. That isn't just so we can live for ourselves, but what can we do for you? And they gave their lives to the purpose of God. That's what we see with Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna are committed to the purpose of God. And so what happens? God honors them. He blesses them. He, he lets them, think about this, he lets them, he directs them to be a part of the most important event in human history, the incarnation of the Son. God has come to the earth in a child and they get to be there to bless and speak into that child. What an honor. Listen, their names are in the Bible, the most read book in human history. They're heroes. We don't know anything about their story ahead of time, and we know nothing of it that I'm aware of. I haven't read anything in church, in, in church tradition of, of anything about their story afterward. But we do know this. At that moment in time when the Son of God came on the scene, God made sure they were there. And I want to tell you, those of you that are in that retirement or you're coming up on your retirement, please, please, can I plead with you? Please, please. We in the body of Christ need what you got. Don't just go do your own thing. Share it. Share the wealth of all you have, resources, wisdom, life experience, knowledge, what God has shown you. Share it with the younger generation and share it with the world and share it with the body of Christ. So many lives will be changed because you said yes to God. Amen. Amen. Thirdly, 
God blesses and speaks to the older generation, to the younger generation. Both Simeon and Anna speak prophetically over Jesus and his family. Verses 30 through 32 and 34 and 35 says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation. This is Simeon speaking. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Then verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, God uses the older to bless the younger and speak into their lives and their future. This is God's pattern. This is another thing that's largely um, lost in our time. As the older generation often, listen, older generation, the older generation is often critical and finds fault with the younger generation, while the younger generation mocks the older and is too proud to believe that all the years of experience have any value. Forgive us, Lord. Older gen, speak life into the younger. Younger gen, receive wisdom and prophetic insight from the older. God's pleased. This is God's way. It's, it's one of the sad things that's happened in our time. And I see it. We, we see it in ads on TV. Old people are mocked and made fun of. But then we, with the older generation, it's always this new generation. They have a terrible work ethic, and they don't do this, and they don't do that. And all, they're on their phones all day long. And yet I look around, and the people that are on their phones equally as much are people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Drool. <laughs> By the way, I've been that guy, so... No judgment, right? I mean, and we see this, this disparaging attitude that goes back and forth between the generations, a lack of honor of the older and a, a criticism and a, a cynicism about the young generation. And yet I look at that and I think of like a lot of the boomers that are living right now that are critical of millennials and Gen Zs. And I think, well, isn't it funny? The boomers, remember what generation you were? Remember, you were the sexual revolution generation. Remember, you were the hippies. Drop out, get high, make love, not war. Right? You were part of that generation. And remember what the greatest generation said about you? These kids these days, they don't work and they just sit around. All they want to do is get high and listen to music. And I mean, it's true. So it's just a repeating pattern. And, and, and yet... You grew up and became responsible adults, and you carried the work of God to the next generation. You did it. And that takes me to the next point. God blesses the younger generation with the care of bringing forth Christ in their time, in their generation. Joseph and Mary are in way over their heads. Think about it. This is the holy son of God they have to raise. No pressure. This is God's work and kingdom on earth in a person through a child. Simeon and Anna know that they must trust God's work with this new generation. Let me assure you that God has entrusted this young generation with the carrying on of the revelation of Jesus on earth. Simeon and Anna blessed them in that work. You know, you might be sitting here and think this new generation doesn't have what it takes to carry the Son of God into the world in this time. But God has given them the grace to do it, so let's bless them in it. It's one of the sad things I see is like, you know, 
the younger generation, I mean, think about it. God, in the same way that God trusted Joseph and Mary, remember, Mary's a teenage girl, Joseph's a, a carpenter or a stonemason, and, uh, and they're pretty poor, and they live in a, in a part of, you know, in, in Nazareth, and right now they're not in Nazareth, but they'll go back to Nazareth, they'll actually go to Egypt for a while, and, and they're entrusted with raising the Son of God. I don't know about you, but I, if I was older and I saw them, I might be like, this young couple's going to do that? Oh, God, help us. But see, God intervened again and again and again because it's not ultimately up to the parents. It's up to God. And God always entrusts people that don't know what they're doing. He entrusted you to carry his son into the world. I look around at the young people in this room, the young generation, and I'm like, Christ is in good hands with them. I believe in you, and I believe in what God's going to do through you. Why do I believe that? Because you're so special? Heck no. Because he's so special. And he cares so much about his work on planet earth and about accomplishing that which he set out to do thousands of years ago that nothing can stop God's work. It doesn't matter how dark it gets, how bad it looks. I'm going to tell you what, this next year, we're going to walk through some darkness. This next year, we're going to face some stuff in this country and around the world. This next year, things could get pretty squirrely and get weird. And there's going to be all kinds of forces at work to divide and conquer, to destroy, to bring us down, to make us depressed. There's all that stuff's going to happen. 2024 is going to be a challenging year. And it's going to be a year where God wins. Every time. He's the greatest of all time. He's never lost a fight. He wins them all. Christ is the conquering king. Amen? So we can trust what God's doing with this next generation. He's not going to be like, oh, they're too messed up. They're on TikTok. Can't do anything with that. All right. Just saying. Number five, I'm almost done here. I'm coming in for a landing. Jesus causes disruption and reveals the heart of people. Think about these prophetic words that Simeon speaks. speaks. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And what is Jesus' entire life? Right? Some are falling, some are rising. He's a sign and he's opposed continually. And a sword will pierce your own soul. This is Mary and Joseph. There's going to come a day when Mary's going to watch her son be crucified. When she's going to watch the one who is pure and beautiful and holy, who only healed the sick, who spoke nothing but pure, sublime truth. She's going to watch him be beaten, spat upon, tortured, and hung on a Roman torture device. Her heart, her soul is going to be pierced. That the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You know, have you ever noticed that when Jesus comes into a life, comes into a home, that he disrupts things, he messes stuff up? We think Jesus is just so sweet and wonderful. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. And yet I find out when Jesus shows up in my life, he doesn't come to kumbaya. He comes to kick my butt. No, 
No, he, he comes to, he loves me, but there's stuff in me and in us that needs to be made right. There's things in us that oppose God's work. We're naturally without the work of Christ in us. And I realize we get a new heart and we have the spirit in us and we're not really any longer. Our tendency isn't to be rebels, but that thing is still alive and is wanting to be a rebel. And the spirit in us is always going to take us in the way of disruption, always going to take us into a road that isn't what is comfortable to us, bring us to places where we're going to have to realize that's not Christ-like in you, that attitude, that way you dealt with that situation, the way you treat people, the way you were in that restaurant, the way you are at your job, that little lie that you're engaging in, all that stuff, that can't stay if I'm going to live in you, if I'm going to have control of your life, that's got to go. I'm coming to mess stuff up. I'm not coming to make you comfortable. I'm not coming to make your life good. I'm coming to make you like my son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does, the great disruptor. Y'all love that. See what happens when you go out to lunch afterward. Just kidding. See, he brings opposition wherever he's revealed because he's so cross-purposed to the world and its corrupt system. Listen, we live it doesn't take, you don't have to believe in conspiracy theories to know this world is so corrupt. There's so many shady things going on all the time in smoky rooms, behind back doors. There's all kinds of deals being made, not just politically, everywhere. And it's sad. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he smokes that stuff out. And he, and you know, it's, it's easy in our time for us to say, them they, out there, it's so bad. The politics, the this, the that. And Jesus always starts with you, not with them. He like comes right here. He's like, okay, you point a finger. There's three pointing right back at you, right? I'm coming to deal with this, the heart, the essence of what it means to be his follower. Amen. I spent a little more time in this service on that point than I did in the first service. And my last point, the presence of Jesus draws out the voice of hope and salvation. I love this. Listen to what Simeon does. And Simeon took him up in his arms. Get this picture of an old man in the temple. And he's got this child. And he's like, this is what he's dreamed of his whole life. This is what he's prayed for. This is what all of his people have yearned for. Oh, he's here. He takes him up in his arms, praises God, and says, now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. What's he saying? I can die. I can die. This is why I was living. It's okay, Lord, if you take me tonight, I'm good. I've fulfilled why I'm here. Now let your master, you may now dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What's his salvation? A baby. Salvation equals baby. Think about that in our time. A sal salvation's always in a baby. Jesus and us. Right? What's, what, where's all the potential for anything good? life-changing, planet-changing that's going to happen. It's in a person. Not in the plan, not in the government, not in, are you kidding me? People are what God brings change through. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish in this room, if you're not of Jewish background, Jewish descent, you are a Gentile. And Jesus is a light of revelation. What does that mean? God shines his light through Jesus and a revelation is an apocalypsis, an unveiling. And and he pulls the curtain off and he says, look, this is what salvation looks like. It's my son. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world, and he's the glory of Israel. Everything Israel had ever waited for and wanted is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything they ever yearned for. And then it says of, of Anna, at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Powerful words of hope. My eyes have seen your salvation. You're a light, your glory, your redemption. You're all those things. Hope. And that's where I want to finish today, with hope. Jesus may disrupt, but ultimately that disruption is to bring hope of restoration. He came into the world to start to reverse the curse, to turn it back, to change what's fallen and what's broken, to bring it up again and make it new and restore it. Right? Hope is powerful. Hope does not just motivate people to positive action. It actually has healing power. John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat, says this. He cites a medical study in which 122 men who had suffered their first heart attack were evaluated on their degree of hopefulness and pessimism. Of the 25 most pessimistic men, 21 had died eight years later. Of the 25 most optimistic men, only six had died. Loss of hope increased the odds of death more than 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any medical risk factor, including blood pressure, amount of damage to the heart, or cholesterol levels. Ortberg adds his own humorous interpretation to the study. He said, It's better to eat Twinkies in hope than to eat broccoli in despair. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Now, the real hope we have is that it doesn't matter how dark it gets. Listen up, church. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. There's light in the world, and that light is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in the nations. I'm not saying it, when I say it doesn't matter, I don't mean that God doesn't care. I mean, ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to win. The world's going to be restored. Light conquers darkness, right? It even says of Jesus in John 1 that he was the light that came into the world and the darkness does not comprehend it, can't extinguish it, can't stop it. I'm telling you what, More than a a bonfire got lit 2,000 years ago when Christ came on the scene. An explosive, powerful movement that has been moving through human history began and it's continuing. And Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? Here in just a minute, we're going to get an opportunity to do something really cool. We're going to end today in this gathering with a candle lighting and we're going to sing Silent Night. We're going to do this to remind ourselves that Jesus came into a dark world and still comes into our dark world. He wants to meet you in the darkness and bring light to you. 
There's some of you here today, I, listen, I, I want you to know something. I, when you preach, one thing you're always aware of is that there are people in the room that are facing desperate circumstances. And so I hope none of this comes across like platitudes to you. Because there's some of you in this room, you're experiencing great loss right now. You're in grief. You've lost a loved one or maybe a job or a relationship is fraying. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You're, you're broken hearted about something. And I want, you, I want you to know something. God knows that. And He cares about that. And He's coming to you today. He is the light for you. He knows about your darkness and He cares about it. He hasn't forsaken you. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He isn't the God that comes and goes. He's not a fair weather friend. If you're His, you're His son, you're His daughter, He never forsakes you. He holds you. That grip of grace is stronger than your ability to hold on to Him. His grip's way stronger than yours. Some of you know that because you've been knuckleheads, gone off and done your own thing. You've run, you've done the rebel thing, and you still find everywhere you turn, He's there chasing you. They're gripping you. He won't let you go. His love will wear you down. His grace is irresistible, and He never quits on His children. Amen?